Hola y bienvenidos to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jaime Sanchez Jr. Today, we are joined by Dr. Benjamin Francis Fallon to talk about his new book, The Rise of the Latino Vote, a History, published by Harvard University Press in 2019. Francis Fallon is an assistant professor of history at Western Carolina University. Ben, welcome to New Books Latino. Thank you, Jaime. It's nice to be here. To start things off, could you tell us a bit about yourself, your teaching, and your scholarship? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I grew up in New York State and now live in the mountains of North Carolina. And I teach at Western Carolina University in the History Department, where I'm also the Director of Social Sciences Education. So I help uh, train new high school teachers. Uh, My teaching primarily focuses on Uh, U.S. Latinx and immigration history, uh, as well as political history. And that's where my uh, research interests really situate themselves, right at the intersection of that Latinx, immigration, and political history in the 20th century. So what was the process that led you to write The Rise of the Latino Vote? You know, (laughs) it it was... a lot of twists and turns. I know I started out um, living in Washington, D.C., and I was interested in writing a book about the Salvadoran migrant community of Washington, D.C. And as I began to research Salvadorans in D.C., I came to understand that the D.C. Latino community was um, multinational in origin, which led me to interrogate questions about, well, sort of how did these different national origin communities interact in Washington, D.C., and, you know, what was it like for them to try to establish a common voice in a particular place? And I tried to research this, and um, I noticed on many occasions that the terminology used to describe this community changed sort of from year to year. People said this was the Spanish surnamed community, the Spanish speaking community. They called it the Hispanic community. They called it a million different things. Um, And that led me to believe that there was sort of an evolution ongoing, that there was change over time. Um, But it also led me to see one name (laughs) continue to pop up in so many of my uh, searches for the terms that came to be used in Washington, D.C., and that name was Richard Nixon. And I came to understand that the questions that were being debated in Washington, D.C. among um, Latinos working at the kind of grassroots level and and in municipal politics uh, were questions that were being hashed out at the national level as well. Um, Questions about, you know, to what degree did uh, Mexican-Americans, principally in the Southwest, Puerto Ricans in the Northeast and Cuban Americans um, in the Southeast, you know, to what degree did these communities uh, interact with one another, relate to one another at the national level? Uh, to what degree could they be said to be um, um, a people for the purposes of uh, politics, um, for the purposes of organizing themselves for civil rights? Um, to what degree was this a national minority group. And so that question really animated. Uh, As I began to see the threads there, I began to realize there was a much bigger story about the emergence, really, of Latinos as a collective, um, or at least as an imagined political collective at the national level. So I began to follow those threads through the Nixon papers and and sort of went from there and, and looked at a more or less 25 year span of Latino integration in national politics. You know, um, I was really struck by the opening line of the book. You say, quote, Latinos entered the national political consciousness, burdened by extraordinary expectations, end quote. What do you mean by that? And how does that statement relate to your book's general argument? It had always seemed uh, always, uh, always from the 1960s on, there was always in the minds of Latinos and in the minds of white Anglo national political elites, um, always a, a sort of a possibility. They always entertained the hope and the potential of, well, what would happen if these sets of people distributed about the country in different ways uh, were somehow to act 
in coordinated fashion. Um, and the, the sort of tantalizing prospect of the nation's Latino peoples becoming a coherent electorate with a sort of focus and direction that could be corralled um, by the political system and including by uh, Latino organizers and elected officials themselves. Um, that was uh, so monumental, that potential. Um, and so what I try to explain in the book is how that potential, um, you know, how people sought to realize that potential, how people Latinos themselves sought to organize themselves into institutions, into alliances, to build friendships, to distribute power among themselves in ways that would crystallize um, that sense of community, a sense of connectedness, and a sense of political destiny among these populations. And, and of course, well, not of course, if many people don't know that, you know, that Mexican-Americans in a place like Los Angeles did not automatically see themselves as um, partners of Puerto Ricans in New York or Chicago or um, anywhere else for that matter. Mexican-Americans in Los Angeles did not necessarily see themselves as belonging to the same political community as uh, ethnic Mexicans in Texas. So um, what I really try to argue in the book is that this political joining that people undertake is is not simply um, a process of connectedness for politics, but it's a redrawing of ethnic boundaries as well, uh, one that's imperfect, to say the least. So let's dive into the, the thick of the book um, and talk about these communities that you mentioned, right? Puerto Ricans in New York, Mexicans in Los Angeles, and in the Southwest generally. What was the early landscape of Latino politics in the 1960s? And how did it eventually become national? Well, I think there's, it's, it's tricky with the timeline that you propose because, um, as I argue in the book, there's really much more politics by Latinos than there is a sort of Latino politics in the sense of a connectedness of Latino political communities um, prior to, say, 1960. And even the tentative alliances that one sees during the early 1960s across Latino communities uh, are just that. They're, they're provisional, they're time-limited, they are uh, going on at the same time as a variety of other political projects. So I guess I would say that in the early 1960s and, and certainly in the period before, um, Latino communities are engaged in a host of political experiments. Um, they are uh, finding themselves building alliances with African Americans in New York and San Antonio and Los Angeles. They are periodically looking across the Southwest to each other. Um, this is ethnic Mexicans primarily to build temporary um, regional structures that might convince especially the Democratic Party to take them seriously. There is a fairly institutionalized presence of so-called Spanish Americans in New Mexico that you know is capable of electing a United States senator throughout the middle third of the 20th century of Spanish American origin. Um, so it's really all over the map. I guess you have um, you have a whole host of experiences in addition to the um, foreign policy oriented experience of Cuban Americans. Um, Cuban Americans arriving at in great numbers after 1959 are not really part of the same kinds of conversations that Mexican Americans and Puerto Ricans are having in the United States because their horizon is for return to Cuba rather than for finding ways to influence the American political system. It should be said that there is just a very small amount of Latino office holding, um, just a couple of, of members of Congress as of, say, 1960, and that number grows to uh, sort of a small handful by the mid-1960s. Latinos are um, a small part of the um, visible political landscape. 
but but very integral to a lot of the places that we're talking about, and it's their emergence as influential in some very important places that causes national leaders to think about, well, okay, um, what would happen if these communities in Los Angeles could be assembled with these communities in New York? And what if a national kind of um, presence could be established for Latinos in politics? So uh, pushing further on that kind of national um, racial political consciousness building, um, you talk about in the book about the institutionalization of panethnicity in national politics. And some of the tools that you mentioned are used to accomplish that were the Cabinet Committee on the Spanish Speaking and the Census. Um, what did that process of making panethnicity mainstream in politics look like? Well, so so this is what we're speaking about here is a sort of a, a reorganization of kind of official categories um, and the development of new systems of interface between Latino populations and the federal government. So, um, and when we're talking, maybe for the audience, when we're talking about pan-ethnicity, I mean, we're talking about this concept that there uh, is a sort of a fundamental connectedness, or it's implied that there's a fundamental connectedness of, in this case, Latino peoples, that Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans and Cubans and Dominicans and Venezuelans and so on, um, belong um, under a particular umbrella, whatever it's called. Is it Spanish-American? Is it Hispanic? Is it Latino? So prior to about 1969, with some exceptions, the federal government regarded Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans, for example, as um, regional peoples in the Northeast and in the Southwest, respectively. The federal government enumerated them with different census categories. And by the mid-1960s, mid to late 1960s, the federal government reached out to them fundamentally as, as separate peoples. Um, Lyndon Johnson created in 1967 an interagency committee on Mexican-American affairs. Um, this was intended to be the federal government's sort of point of contact with Mexican-American civil rights and um, social work and activist groups. Um, the federal government referred to Mexican-Americans as the nation's second largest minority. But by 1969, there starts to be a shift um, and the Congress begins to get involved and to establish these kind of pan-ethnic institutions, one of which is turns the Interagency Committee on Mexican-American Affairs into a cabinet committee on opportunities for Spanish-speaking people. So this involves a sort of a, um, a slight diminution in Mexican-Americans' importance and a reorganization um, of the Mexican-American lobbying presence in Washington uh, to be sort of coexistent with, alongside with Puerto Ricans and um, Cuban-Americans. The, the example of this is that there was one Mexican-American leading Lyndon Johnson's committee, the Interagency Committee on Mexican-American Affairs. And for the Cabinet Committee on Opportunities for Spanish-Speaking People, that had a, a mass advisory board of Mexican-Americans, Cuban-Americans, and, and Puerto Ricans. So there was an effort to Hmm. just sort of rearrange the way in which um, Washington thought about the components of an emerging Spanish-speaking political community, as they called it. The census is a little bit of a different story. The census is kind of a lesson in un unintended consequences. Um, Richard Nixon had made a, a handful of promises to Mexican-Americans in the 1968 election, one of which was that they would be counted nationwide in the next census. And um, to deliver on that promise, Nixon uh, forced the Census Bureau to institute a national category that he intended would apply to Mexican-Americans. But in order to make it work, uh, the Census Bureau created a new uh, pan-ethnic category, Spanish origin. So this was one of those moments where 
uh, a national politician was target, targeting a particular Latino constituency, but the delivery of official recognition had the impact of folding that constituency into a larger pan-ethnic whole, a so-called Spanish origin whole, uh, one that connected Mexican America and to some degree subsumed it under a larger Spanish origin heading. And I think uh, we should also give a, a shout out, as, as uh, you also cite in the book, Cristina Mora's um, 2014 book, Making Hispanics, How Activist Bureaucrats and Media Constructed a New American, because there's also in the 1970s, the rise of um, what eventually became the Spanish language television network, Univision. And so media also plays into this, uh, you know, categorization by the state and the census, but also activists and, um, and media forces as well, right? Absolutely. There's tremendous overlap. And, and that book does, uh, does a great job of alerting us to many of these connections. Um, Politicians demand, uh, politicians need numbers, um, activist groups demand numbers, uh, activist groups demand numbers on the, for the purpose of obtaining representation and federal funds for their communities. Politicians want the same numbers so they could more effectively target electorates. Advertisers want to target markets. Um, Individuals who run political campaigns also work for advertisers in this world. Um, there's a tremendous uh, interconnectedness to the the media, the elected officials, and the activist communities who are at once, you know, cultivating electorates and cultivating markets. Absolutely. Um, earlier, you mentioned how few um, Latinos were members of Congress um, with a surge in the 1970s. But you, you mentioned um, that a major force in the creation of this idea of the Latino vote were Latino members of Congress, the few that there were. And you also talk about an event called the Unidos Conference. So what, what were they doing and what was happening in this moment? So the Unidos Conference um, took place in October of 1971. And it was planned, uh, nominally planned at least. I think there were people working on it at the lower levels, but uh, it was sponsored by two congressmen, uh, Edward Ross Roybal of Los Angeles and Herman Badillo um, of New York. And Roybal was the first uh, Mexican-American elected to the Congress from California in the 20th century. Uh, Badillo was the first Puerto Rican elected to a voting position in the U.S. Congress ever. And Badillo had been elected in 1970. His presence in New York indicated to Roybal, who had been elected in 1962, um, that there was some potential for a new uh, congressional leadership role in establishing uh, a, a what was then called a Spanish-speaking vote. And so in 1971, they plan the Unidos Conference, also known as the Spanish-Speaking Coalition Conference. And it's intended to bring together principally a small group of elected officials from around the country to Washington, D.C., where they could hammer out um, maybe 200 of them was the idea. That was the top, so they could hammer out a program to... Um, exemplify the common needs, the sort of policy strategies, and the political connectedness, um, set of structures to, to unify politically the Mexican-American and Puerto Rican communities. And that's the plan. And they want just a relatively small number of modest and respectable people to show up. Uh, and 1,200 people show up, far more than they ever imagined for this weekend conference. Um, and it is a yeah, it is a massive watershed moment. The people who participated in it really felt as if this was the first time that um, the activist communities from the Southwest and the Northeast really got to know each other, but also middle class and professional uh, types who were politically engaged uh, got a chance to know each other for the first time. So 
uh, it was just a, a tremendous range of people involved and interest involved in this idea of a Spanish-speaking coalition. So you had social workers and professors and youth activists and Puerto Rican independence activists and Jose Angel Gutierrez of the Raza Unida Party um, and other Chicano movement activists in the same room as the elected officials and their aides. Uh, and so over a couple of days, they work to sort of hammer out a set of policy positions that will be the effective expression of the desires of the Spanish-speaking community of the United States. That is, they work to elaborate a foundation for Latino political unity going forward, uh, in addition to the actual structures that would represent Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans um, as one. And what's really interesting about this moment, besides the fact that they come together and found a policy platform is that they devise new ways of thinking about how these communities would share power. Mexican-Americans were far more numerous on the mainland than Puerto Ricans. Um, and yet the Spanish-speaking coalition that is established treats essentially Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans as sort of equal groups in the political landscape. Um, so it's one of these moments where um, we start to see kind of new ideas about power sharing among Latino populations. Um, and I'm happy to talk more about it if you like, um, but, but that's a start at least. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned that far more people than they expected showed up to this conference. And I'm sure that, you know, Roy Ball and Badillo and these other, uh, you know, largely Democratic office holders had a particular type of intended audience, let's say, uh, thinking about respectability politics and moderation. Can you talk a little bit more about the potential conflict or pushback from radical se segments at that conference and how that impacted the political agenda, particularly, particularly we're talking about Chicano and Puerto Rican nationalists. Sure. So it was definitely, um, it was definitely the case that Roy Ball and Badia were, um, were liberals. Um, they were liberals with a sort of basic kind of new deal liberal orientation. Um, where Baal himself had been in the Civilian Conservation Corps, and um, they were both sort of within the mainstream of the kind of liberal part of the Democratic Party um, at the same time as they were um, emerging ethnic leaders. And the challenges they faced um, were in many ways the challenges about what, you know, what would Latino coalition politics actually look like? Would would they be forming a coalition based upon sort of shared values and goals? And that was primarily the objective of, of the liberal congressman. You know, so what, you know, what, what do Mexican Americans and Puerto Ricans have in common? Um, but leftists who attended the conference had a, you know, had a different idea of what Latino coalition looked like. Um, rather they saw it as the, efforts of Latino communities to help one another with their very particular needs. And so this raised questions about Puerto Rican independence, for example. Um, and there were a number of uh, pro-independence uh, delegates or, or, you know, members of the audience, and they um, made themselves very, very heard. And, uh, but also the questions that were sort of central to the Chicano movement at the time, things like you know, reclamation of the land and the possibility of third party politics. Um, so this is sort of the, the formation period for La Raza Unida Party, the Chicano third party in the Southwest. And that presence was complicating for the sponsors of the event. And they were liberal Democrats, of course, and they wanted to show to the major parties that they commanded a population that was independent and potentially the balance of power in national elections. 
Um, yet at the same time, third party politics was far, far beyond their area of interest. And so when they were fighting uh, an action to basically suppress the idea that um, there needed to be a Spanish speaking third party, some kind of something that might have been an extension of La Raza Unida, but um, maybe nationwide. And they were also fighting off the desires of Puerto Rican independence activists to spotlight their cause. What this meant in practice was a sort of narrowing of of the Latino political community. Um, Sort of typical fashion for these questions. The liberal Democrats would... um, proposed that Puerto Rican independence was an issue for the island and that the mainland Puerto Rican community had nothing really to say about that. Um, And that found a lot of pushback from activists who believed that they were uh, part of that community, though their residence was in the mainland. So uh, what ended up happening is that while a platform was, basic platform was agreed upon that showed a tremendous amount of connectedness and overlap in issues, um, elected officials, the sponsors of the conference, really withdrew their support from it when forces advocating Puerto Rican independence and third-party movements of Chicanos, uh, when when they began to take control of the conference, uh, when they began to assert themselves, when the conference moved farther left, um, that led the sponsors of it to um, to abandon their effort to create a kind of national Spanish-speaking coalition because it wasn't wasn't something that they really could control in the way that they felt they needed to. Hmm. And I think, you know, your book isn't just about Latino liberals or Democrats, right? You also devote many chapters to Hispanic conservatives and the Republican Party's efforts to court them. How did the GOP appeal to Latinos or whatever they called themselves? And how did Latinos in the GOP organize themselves? Yeah, so the book really does, as you say, try to explain the rise of the Latino vote as a uh, multi-party phenomenon. Um, While it's, of course, true that, you know, most Latino voters were at this time and to the present day voting for Democrats, there has been and, and remains a fairly significant uh, amount of Latino or Hispanic republicanism. And so I tried to explain, you know, t- to some degree how this happened and how it contributed to this overall acceptance of this idea of a um, Latino political collective. Um, Republicans appeals to Hispanic voters, and here I'm kind of shifting terms because I'm wanting to use the terms that Hispanic Republicans themselves used. Uh, they were uh, simple in many ways and a little more subtle in some others. I think, unfortunately, uh, the first one to appreciate uh, or to recognize, at least, is that Republicans appealed to Mexican-American voters uh, on the basis of race animus. Some of the earliest Republican appeals, particularly in California, but also in Texas, um, centered on a language of being taken for granted. Um, Republicans allege that Democrats took Latinos for granted, and there was always in that um, subtext that while they took you for granted, they were doing X, Y, and Z for African Americans. And that the Democratic Party is the party of the blacks, as, as one memo in the Nixon administration um, had it, you know, this was the goal of of Republican appeals to sort of heighten the consciousness of Mexican Americans that they were being passed over in in order for African Americans to get Democrats' attention. So that was one strand that didn't work uh, in the same way for Republicans appealing to Puerto Ricans. Um, the idea of a racial backlash uh, politics with Puerto Ricans. Um, was not as tenable. Partly this was because the Republicans who ran in areas where lots of Puerto Ricans live tended to be much more liberal, and they wanted black voters as well. And so polarizing a Latino constituency around kind of racial questions 
uh, didn't suit their strategies. Hmm. It suited the strategies of people like Barry Goldwater in the Southwest, uh, John Tower, Texas Senator in the Southwest. It suited Ronald Reagan's strategies. Uh, Republicans in the Southwest who had come out against the Civil Rights Act in 1964 would in the next couple of years talk about how Democrats were not applying the Civil Rights Act on behalf of Mexican Americans, but rather only for African Americans. So there was that. Um, But when Republicans gained the White House, they began to have access to sort of greater uh, means of inducement, so to speak. So uh, Republicans appealed, still appealed on the basis of stoking racial animosity in Latino communities, particularly Mexican-Americans. But they also unveiled a series of new programs that targeted upwardly mobile members of Latino communities. So in 1970, Richard Nixon unrolls, uh, a, unveils a, a brown capitalism program, essentially a small business aid initiative called the National Economic Development Association aimed at uh, promoting Spanish-speaking entrepreneurs, assisting in the formation of Hispanic-owned banks, and so on. And and the whole pitch here is that, you know, to be Hispanic or to be Spanish-speaking American um, is about having upward mobility as a central value, and the Republican Party respects your urge for independence and will use the forces of government to promote it in, uh, in the marketplace. There was also, um, under the Nixon administration, a effort to extend affirmative action in the federal in federal employment to Spanish-speaking Americans. So, uh, and again, the latter is particularly um, overlaid with sort of racial questions because the the idea was that African Americans were the only beneficiaries of affirmative action in the civil service, and it was time to even the score by extending this protection to Spanish-speaking Americans. Um, So uh, also bilingual education, but the big ones initially are are small business aid and affirmative action and sort of other forms of of patronage federal grants to uh, nonprofits, federal jobs more generally, appointments. Um, It was always the case that Latino leaders, whether Democratic or Republican, liked seeing their people in positions of seeming authority. So Republicans were eager to check those boxes by naming Latinos to positions of visibility in the federal system. One of the most obvious examples of this is Romana Banuelos. Uh, She's a Mexican food entrepreneur and uh, bank president, I think, from Los Angeles. And Richard Nixon makes her the treasurer of the United States. And this is a position that involves having her signature on every dollar bill. She's a symbol of business success. Her name on the dollar bill is a symbol of Nixon's inclusion of Mexican-American people in the country. So it's those sorts of appeals. You know, um, while we're on the topic of partisan divides, um, one might argue that there were two parallel Latino political projects or communities, right? One in each um, party. Um, And like you mentioned, the rise of the Latino vote um, could be seen as this multi-party phenomenon, which I think is a really good way to phrase it. Um, But did, let's say, Latino Democrats and self-proclaimed Hispanic Republicans ever interact Right? Did they ever come face to face, or were they just, you know, doing their own thing in different in different sectors? Um, and were they two parts of a whole Latino vote, or were they separate movements entirely? So I think, from the standpoint of the institutions in the period, I cover that you know there's there's a separate and kind of parallel process of building and and the thing i didn't mention before hispanic republicans established their own institutions within the republican party um basically after watergate and under the sponsorship of of the rnc had george hw bush um, they build a republican national hispanic assembly so um 
the question of, you know, and, and that has nothing to do with, and I, I don't think has any interaction with ever, um, the Latino caucus in the Democratic Party. So the kind of the formal, <laughs> the formal institutions um, are generally uh, separate. I think you can talk about shared assumptions. I think both Hispanic Republicans and Latino Democrats are invested in the idea of um, sort of blurring the lines between coalition and community. And what I mean by that is they're invested in conveying um, a a sort of um, essential sameness of their constituencies, one that um, would suggest to the people more powerful than they are um, that there was a bit more of a unity or a naturalness of a Latino vote than perhaps there was. Um, I think at different moments, uh, there are Latinos in, of, of these different political orientations in the same room. The Unidos Conference is one of those moments. Um, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus becomes one of those institutions that's built that, at least in theory, um, is not of a uh, exclusive partisan nature. Edward Rybal starts the nation, what is then the National Association of Latino Democratic Officials, but by 1979 removes the Democratic and just talks about it as a sort of elected officials organization. So there is, um, I think there is a, there's a sort of constant organizing within the parties, but I think there also is a sense of awareness that both Democratic Latinos and Hispanic Republicans are invested in the same project of just convincing, just convincing the elites in their parties to take them seriously. Um, And not really, not to retreat from the commitments that the parties began to show to them in the the mid-1970s, in the early 1970s. One of the realities for both groups of people that we're talking about is that the rise of conservatism in the Republican Party and the um, sort of squishiness of liberalism in the Carter administration um, made it very uncertain that um, the gains in recognition, the gains in acceptance, the institutionalization of Latino votes within those two parties would really be continued. Um, it was not um, not certain that the parties would accept that Latinos were a permanent minority constituency. There was still a tremendous amount of wishful thinking on the part of people in both parties that Latinos would melt in the way of Euro-Americans. Um, they had they felt in some ways that they had accepted the African-American movement and that that was enough, and that there had to be a line drawn somewhere. Hmm. Um, so I guess, you know, I don't, I think there are lots of points of contact in the federal bureaucracy, lots of ways in which um, conservative and liberal activists are brought together in lobbying around things like the census. Um, that's a sort of uh, point of connectedness. That's a shared aim, and the institutions of government want to hear from both sides. Uh, so, you know, I think there there was a decent amount of this, and um, and in the extension of the Voting Rights Act as well. Um, so there weren't a lot of Latino elected officials in the Republican Party, and that helps explain to some degree why there um, why the parallel tracks don't cross over more. Um, as well. I'm not sure if that actually got, got to your question um, enough or if, if there was more to it that I might add to. Well, I was just thinking, but, but then when there were enough, uh, you know, Lat- Latinos in Congress who were Republican, um, there was further division institutionally when they left in 2003, they left the Congressional Hispanic Caucus to form the Congressional Hispanic Conference. Um, 
and they had their own, once again, their own parallel um, advocacy groups, um, the Hispanic Republicans think, on one side yeah. and the Latino Democrats. And I think this is, you know, there's a, um, there's a challenge about nonpartisanship. I mean, there's always an ambition among both Democrats and Republicans that this people could, could make itself appear um, flexible. That is, for Democrats, we could leave you. And for Republicans, we could leave them for you. Um, and the, the very uh, multinational, multi-regional, um, really uh, complex nature of, of these communities sort of presented the possibility that, uh, that it was never going to be a decided thing, that, there was, that this was a group that would be by its nature in play. Um, and I guess what, what I'm sort of pointing to in that is that, um, the expectation, um, of a Latino vote as being, um, pliable, as being, as being open to, uh, either party's overtures is really, you know, is really kind of one of the crucial common thread and it doesn't, um, it doesn't work if people within the parties are not speaking the language of the parties, I guess. Uh, that is pitching Latino-ness to the emerging senses of the parties in, in their own, in the language that the parties want to hear. Um, I'm, I was going to ask, um, so you're a historian and we live in the archives. Um, you mentioned, you know, looking at one of Nixon's memos that, tries that gets at this point of uh, stoking racial animosity or or a zero-sum game type of politics. Um, is there a, a source document that really sticks out in your head that you remember really clearly that was maybe not your favorite, but your most memorable? Um, maybe that could be a campaign poster or a document or something that you think really just grabbed you out of the archive. Um, there are there are a lot of them. Um, one that one that stands out uh, was a memorandum in the Ford, the Gerald Ford papers, um, where that question is um, pretty is laid out plainly. Um, I could hunt it up if you wanted to hear it, um, but the essence of it is basically a campaign operative in the Ford administration is um, explaining the lay of the land in ahead of the 1976 uh, election. And they're trying to figure out sort of which of the Latino communities, um, you know, ought to be the emphasis of the Ford campaign during that, uh, during that time. Actually, I found it here if you, if you'd like to know about it. Um, and, the backdrop of this is that Ford had lost to Reagan uh, in the 1976 Florida primaries. Um, and um, there was a question about how Ford was going to regain, now that he was the nominee, how he was going to regain Cuban support. Um, and so the analyst explained to his superiors, let's not forget that Mexican Americans in California and Texas are different from one another and jealous and can be played off. But better still, they can be played off against the Negroes to break the monolithic low-class mass that goes Democrat. We should do all in our power to encourage this division, splitting the opposition, by doing what we can on a local basis, however, to show that Chicanos will do more from them for them and not prefer the Negroes as the Democrats do. The terrain is ripe for this since the Chicanos are acquiring greater cognizance of their strength and heritage and the fact that they figure last on the minority totem pole. So um, this was, you know, I think a, a, a really clear example of the racial and the kind of class ideas that were swirling around Republican campaigners and, you know, what place they envisioned for the Latino vote as a, as a disruptor of the Democratic coalition. So I remember seeing that and my eyes sort of popping out at how um, open it was, um, how candid it was, uh, on those questions of 
racial and class unity and, and how to promote disunity on, on both counts. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Even the way that they so clearly outlined this racial hierarchy and a kind of intra-ethnic hierarchy be, be within and between Mexicans, right? Um, and those regional divides that between California and Texas, which people could arguably say are still real to this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that the the Republican goal of winning over the Texas style Mexican American voter, the Texas Mexican American voter, which was so important to Richard Nixon, you know, that was um, in in polling, especially that that idea that the Texas Mexican American had this sort of uh, the very right combination of conservative cultural values and sort of middle class aspiration that a place like San Antonio was um, a model of the possible for Hispanic republicanism was um, was really, uh, really enticing to that community or to that political organization, I should say. So you probably saw this question coming, um, but how do you think your research informs the current race for the presidency in, in 2020? Well, I... <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think, you know, by now, I, I would hope that people um, looking at the 2020 election would have appreciated the complexity of the Latino electorate. I would hope that um, a book like this would help them understand Latino support for Donald Trump. Um, I hope would hope that it would also point in some ways to um, how Democrats can think about or have been thinking about appealing to Latino voters um, beyond just sort of the matters of recognition. One of the findings I make in the book that I think is is most valuable is 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 finding the ways that Latino Democrats attempted to use you know, what might be dismissed as an identity politics to use their um, mobilization as a, as a group identity um, to secure and sort of fight for the objectives of the New Deal and, and then later the Great Society. Um, that Democrats, I guess, in the present day, thinking about big structural changes, um, thinking about tackling major kind of economic inequalities, um, they don't have to do that in a language that is sort of ethnically neutral. That there are these combinations of ethnic appeal and kind of class appeal or, or hardcore economic appeals that Latino elected officials and, and activists have worked on over the years, you know, trying to make things like health insurance uh, for all a Latino issue, for example. One um, certainly recognizes in the in the period that I'm studying how uh, appeals to anti-abortion feeling, um, how things like aid to parochial schools and how uh, belligerent foreign policy in the hemisphere were sold to Hispanic Republicans as sort of the essence of their ethnic values. And similarly, in the 70s, and, and one assumes it allows in the present day, um, ideas about big economic transformations, ideas about government as a sort of provider of economic security and a, a guarantor of social welfare are things that can be articulated in a powerful way um, if they are articulated in light of group values rather than in a kind of sterile uh, economistic language. I think... One of the things that you mentioned in the epilogue that I thought was a good takeaway is that the potential of Latino solidarity can be rooted in this recurring, and emphasis on can be, because so far it's iffy, but can be rooted in this recurring expectation that we started talking about in the beginning of the interview, this recurring expectation about a national political community waiting to wake up. And in fact, that's the beauty of national presidential elections, that every election is the beginning of a of the same conversation, but again, another opportunity to test unity. And I think um, 
every every experiment, every election is different. And that's what you show in your research. Yeah, I think the you know, since for it's been now almost 60 years that the presidential election has been this ritual um, for um, the, the society's awareness of, um, but also for Latinos' awareness of each other. And um, for working out the questions of well, who are who are we, these people? Uh, you know, are we? Um, what are our beliefs? What is our place within the United States? And um, you know, what what do we stand for? And, and it's a time when the candidates, these figures of enormous national significance, reflect back and try to mold that sense of connectedness and solidarity. Of course, for their own purposes. Um, but it is a sort of a, a quadrennial soul searching and maybe, maybe biennial if one wants to take into account how, um, congressional races are these days. Um, it's a, it is a moment where the narrative, where the story of the sleeping giant, for example, is retold and questioned or accepted. Um, it's a moment when communities that otherwise may not have a whole lot to say to one another or individuals who may not necessarily imagine themselves beyond fairly narrow confines of city or region or nationality um, can enter into a wider conversation. So um, it is uh, it's an exciting uh, experiment, I guess, and we'll see how it turns out. Once again, listeners, we've been talking to Dr. Benjamin Francis Fallon about his brand new book, The Rise of the Latino Vote, A History, out now from Harvard University Press. Ben, thank you so much for being with us here on New Books in Latino Studies. Oh, it was absolutely my pleasure, Jaime. Thank you so much.